Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us for this edition of the show on a frigid day. Uh, I've, I frankly have not checked the temperatures around the state, but when I woke up this morning in my neighborhood, uh, kind of near Emory University, it's like 28 degrees. So I hope you'll all stay safe and warm uh, throughout the day. Politics is heating up in Georgia with the legislative session underway. It never seems to slow down, though. It never cools off much. And, and you know, it's interesting. It's now been just about a month since the runoff election. And after such a tumultuous entire 2020 election cycle and all the attention that we and other uh, media, of course, paid to the elections, you'd think it'd be time to put voting to rest for at least a little while, to stop talking about it uh, right now. But we can't do that. In fact, uh, some of the biggest stories in our news today have to do with voting. Um, uh, voting. One of them is uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, analysis of voting in the runoff election. They found, as I said in the very headlines of the show, that about three-quarters of a million people who voted on November 3rd did not come back and vote in the runoff election. And the AJC's analysis suggested that a great many of those voters very likely would have been Republican voters because they were in rural Georgia, they were largely white voters in various parts of the state, which at least gives us some suggestion that the fears that Donald Trump's constant attacks on the integrity of the presidential election really did hurt Republican uh, turnout. Uh, and then the story that moves us forward in voting is the fact that Republicans in the state Senate have now introduced a package of legislation which Democrats uh, will call and are calling voter suppression. Republicans insist is all about voter security, but one way or another, uh, basically amounts to an overhaul of how people will vote moving ahead if their legislation passes. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is back in the news today. We'll talk about her, and we're going to dip our toes into the mayoral election here in Atlanta for the first time uh, this year as well. So all that said, we're joined today, as we are on every Wednesday, by AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein. Um who is in the middle of writing his book on the 2020 uh, Georgia elections. Hi, Greg. How are you doing? Good morning. Thanks for letting me be here again. <laughs> well, we're very glad you wanted to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we're joined also today uh, by Julianne Thompson, a longtime Republican political strategist and activist in Republican politics in the state of Georgia. Julianne, how are things going out your way this morning? Things are going fine. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Cesar Mitchell is here as well. He, of course, a former president of the Atlanta City Council, now a partner at Denton's Caesar, the world's largest law firm. Hi. Hey, it's great to be here again. Yeah, it's, it's very nice to have you back. And joining us for the first time in a while, too, uh, Jeremiah Olney. Jeremiah is a uh, Democratic political 
a consultant, did a lot of work on a voter turnout in the 2020 election cycle, and is also a uh, partner of Theron Johnson's over at Paramount Consulting, which does a lot of uh, lobbying work and consulting on uh, policy issues. How are you, Jeremiah? I'm doing well. I appreciate being back. Thank you for giving me a break while I do some elections work, but now I've got a little more time, so happy to join Political Rewind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Greg, let's start with the package that Republicans in the Senate have introduced. I, I mentioned it uh, uh, much of it in the headlines. They want to eliminate no-excuse absentee balloting, <coughs> which is something Republicans themselves put in place back in around 2000. 5, 2006, something like that, when it was Republicans who tended to use absentee uh, voting. They want to eliminate drop boxes for uh, people to uh, put their ballots in. Um, and separate and apart from what they want to do with mail-in balloting, they also want to eliminate uh, automatic registration, which took place when people applied for a driver's license, got a driver's license, they would be automatically registered. What's ironic about that is, isn't it Brian Kemp who put that in place as Secretary of State? Yeah, and expanded that legislation. Um, and and I think and if that's one of the the proposals that's getting a lot of attention. The other one, which you which you mentioned as well, was would roll back a state law allowing registered voters to cast an absentee ballot for any reason. Instead, under yes. this proposal, absentee voting would be limited to those over seventy five years old, people with disabilities, or anyone required to be absent from his or her precinct. So that's that's caused a lot of the controversy here. These are all separate proposals. This is not one big package. Uh, and there's going to be more um, voting-related proposals from, from the Senate and from the House. One from the Senate, from another group of Senate Republicans um, any day now. Um, but what's important to note, too, is that um, Speaker Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan have both opposed ending at-will absentee voting. Um, so, so those that proposal might be getting a lot of press, might be getting a lot of attention, but when legislative leaders oppose it, uh, it means it's not likely to get too far. Um, so let's do a round on this one. I'd love to get everybody to weigh in on on these proposals. And Julianne, uh, since you are the Republican on the panel today, let me start with you, if I may. Um, as we know. After three recounts of Georgia votes, three um, audits of the election here, there was uh, very little fraud discovered in Georgia balloting. Um, and so the question becomes, why Republicans seem to feel that absentee balloting particularly is a voter security issue? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Um, first of all, there have been calls for changing some of these election laws for quite some time. It hasn't started really just with this particular past election, although things did ramp up as a result of it. I think uh, regarding the different uh, packages that you discussed, I think that strengthening voter ID laws uh, when it comes to absentee balloting, whether it ends up being photocopies of government-issued IDs or requiring voters to include their driver's license or social security numbers, which of those things they decide on or compromise on, I don't know, but I believe one of those things will pass um, as both the governor and the secretary of state are calling for them. Um, I think no excuse absentee voting is going to stand as it currently is. Like Greg said, Ralston and Duncan have both made it very clear that they don't support changing it back. 
Uh, but I think that the real interesting debate is going to be over ballot drop boxes. Um, that's going to be the one to watch. I don't think either side wins entirely on this issue. And I expect it to probably be a compromise, like putting drop boxes inside government buildings under better surveillance, possibly with in-person security. I think it's going to be some sort of compromise where ballot drop boxes are concerned. So, Caesar, and then Jeremiah, I'd like you to give your thoughts on this as well. Caesar? Well, you know, I think regardless of how you look at this, uh, you know, there's no way to dress this up. This is, in my opinion, an attempt to restrict access to uh, the voting booth uh, or the voting process, and I think it's inappropriate. And, and to try to color it uh, in a legitimate fashion with the backdrop of the quote-unquote allegations of election fraud, I think is unfortunate. And I think most voters and, and, and most of the electorate will see through that candidly, and, and certainly leadership and other members of the legislature will, will, will have a hard time being able to stand up and say, it is legitimate. I will agree with Julianne on one point. I think, uh, you know, we've gotten past uh, this apprehension uh, for having uh, voter or utilizing or requiring voter ID. So I could see some 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 tightening of that, and that could possibly get some support and pass. But uh, these other measures, candidly, at the end of the day, are really about uh, restricting and contracting uh, voter turnout, and that's unacceptable in my opinion. Jeremiah. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Caesar. This is absolutely an effort to restrict the vote. And the justification they've been giving for the last couple of weeks, because we've known they were going to drop these bills for a long time, they've been saying, we need to restore the feeling of security to our elections. Our voters don't believe that our elections are secure anymore. And the reason they don't believe they, they're secure anymore is because they've been telling them they're not secure anymore. This is a problem that they've created themselves, and they've lowered the confidence of our voting systems, particularly among their voting base. And then they go back and say, well, now I need to fix this. But rather than fixing it by coming out and saying, look, we conducted an audit. We conducted multiple recounts. We found no fraud. We found no problems. They've decided to say something else, and they've tried to suggest that their elections are broken, which they're not. So, uh, Caesar, I know you want to jump back in, but let me introduce uh, your next comments with this. Uh, we've said a couple times on this show that uh, a month or so ago, when Calvin Smyrie, the dean of the Georgia legislature, was on Political Rewind, and we talked about the question of voting restriction bills that were going to be introduced, uh, he really sounded the alarm. He drew a line in the sand saying, if there's an effort to turn back voting rights that we have fought for, meaning, of course, African Americans for many decades, this will become the biggest fight we've uh, uh, undertaken. And Caesar, when you frame that uh, argument in the context of voting rights for uh, all people, that now suddenly is not just an issue in the 2021 legislative cycle. It becomes an issue moving forward to the 2022 elections as well, Caesar. I mean, absolutely. I think you, I mean, it would be an incredible political miscue on the part of the Republican uh, leadership if they continue to push this. Uh, and I want to just echo something Jeremiah said. One thing we learn in, in the practice of law, if there's a problem uh, and that problem is significant, significant enough, courts expect you to create a narrowly tailored solution. Uh, if there is, in fact, a desire to make voters feel more comfortable, which that makes no sense to me, uh, then come up with a narrowly tailored solution that does not impact uh, people's access, voters' access to the polls. And, and these proposals don't do that. Uh, what about technology? What about other forms of post-election or post 
vote casting that, uh, audit and things uh, of that nature. So I just think in this case, it, you, not only do you have kind of what I call the nonsensical nature of the, of the underlying rationale of why these bills have been introduced, but also I agree with uh, Leader Smiley. This will turn into something that will that will not only impact the 22 elections, but will have national uh, implications in ways that I don't think uh, you know the, the folks who introduced this legislation have uh, considered. Greg, I watch it. Well, I'm sorry, Caesar. Greg, I want you to jump back in, but I, I do want to point something out when Caesar says, you know, what, what are the common sense uh, approaches to this? In fact, in your poll released at the beginning of this week, which had a lot of really interesting uh, data to dig into, and we'll do a little of that a little later, um, a majority, a small majority, but a majority of the Georgians who responded did say that they are fine with some form of photo ID as part of mail-in balloting. Now, they then said they don't want to restrict mail-in balloting, but they think it does make sense and that it will be an election, a voter security issue, to add photo ID. So there is an approach that maybe can win some Democratic support, yes? Yeah, and Caesar alluded to this uh, in his earlier remarks, just saying that there there is a growing consensus, there's or at least a growing comfortability with using some form of photo ID. And this is where I think Democrats are still going to staunchly oppose it, but this is where I think there's most uh, room for Republicans to pass uh, something this year because Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, and Speaker Ralston have all endorsed some form of identification verification for um, for absentee ballots. And the legislation that was filed on Monday includes a measure to require a, copper, a copy of a voter's ID, a driver's license number, or a state ID number when requesting an absentee ballot. And that is far less restrictive than earlier proposals that would have required voters to submit a copy of their photo ID twice, which Democrats said was severely restrictive because it required access to a copy machine. Yeah. Julianne, jump in. Sure. Well, it, like Greg said, this is something that's supported by the governor both, uh, and both by uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan as well as uh, uh, David Ralston. But it's also supported by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Uh, he's been behind supporting strengthening ID laws uh, for absentee balloting. And um, he certainly doesn't believe that there was widespread election fraud. So, I, I mean, this is something that I think it can be supported across the board and something that they can find some sort of compromise on. But like you said, um, you know, looking at the poll, it's it's very difficult to call for even more stringent ID, but not to allow people to legally vote absentee and to try to 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 shrink the amount of people that can vote where that's concerned. So I like I said before, I do not believe that they're going to be successful in doing away with no excuse absentee. Um, I want to put this, and Jeremiah, I'll ask you to comment on, on all of this, but, but let me add this to our conversation. Uh, in a broader context, the Brennan Center for Justice just released a study of voting bills that have been introduced so far in 2021 legislative sessions around the country. Uh, they point out that all but six states have now started their 2021 uh, sessions, and they say this. In a backlash, this is the Brennan Center report uh, that I'm quoting right now. Uh, They say, um, in a backlash to historic voter turnout in the 2020 general election and grounded in a rash of baseless, they say, and racist allegations of voter fraud and election irregularities, 
Legislators have introduced three times the number of bills to restrict voting access as compared to this time last year. 28 states have introduced, pre-filed, or carried over 106 restrictive voting bills this year as compared to 35 such bills in 15 states uh, a year ago. And they point out that many of these uh, bills are being introduced in states dominated by Republicans. Now, Jeremiah, the Brennan Center is a more obviously, from the language, a more liberal-leaning uh, 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 organization. Uh, nevertheless, the data is clear. This is a nationwide effort. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's because nationwide, a lot of voters are getting kind of fed up with Republican policies and parties, and certainly more so over the last four years, since Donald Trump kind of stopped saying those things quietly and started blowing them into the public sphere. And I mean, Republicans have always controlled state legislatures, at least for the last few decades, for the most part. They've been very good at like local ground game. They've been very good at gerrymandering those districts. If you look at Georgia, I mean, we still have very large Republican majorities in both chambers, despite the fact that we now have had uh, two elections, both in the 2020 election and the 2021 runoff, where Democrats have outperformed in total in the state. But, I mean, this is the thing. They're trying to change the rules of the game now that they're losing the game, rather than learning how to play the game, which is to actually like try and pass priorities that voters care about, things like a higher minimum wage, things like expanding Medicaid, which is something we still haven't done here in Georgia in any meaningful way. They don't have platforms to run on anymore. I can't think of anything that Republicans have done for the people of Georgia over the last decade. Now they're just trying to maintain power by making it harder for people to vote. I want to touch on one more thing. We're having all these conversations about new voting restrictions. And the fact of the matter is we had about 5 million people vote in the 2020 election, which was historic record turnout. But registered voters in Georgia number 7.7 million. So you have 2.7 million people who still didn't vote. So why aren't we talking about making it easier for those people to vote rather than making it harder for the people who've already gotten over that hill and voted? Um, Greg, let's cl uh, close out this portion of the conversation with another interesting fact in terms of putting this in a national context. There are now a, a, a number of states which are trying to change uh, the laws in terms of how electors are chosen. Uh, Oklahoma, for instance, has a bill that wants to allow legislators to choose the presidential electors unless the, the Congress passes a federal law that deals with voting ID. On the other hand, Greg, there are 11 states that have introduced proposals to adopt a national popular vote compact under which states would um, award their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the national vote. So what's interesting about all of this is what it shows us about how our electoral system was revealed as maybe never before by the 2020 cycle. Yeah, it was strained. It was, it was, it was stressed. It held up, obviously. But um, there's all sorts of proposals, as you mentioned, in state legislatures and in Congress to continue to solidify that because uh, it passed a major stress test, but next time we might not be as fortunate um, for our for our democratic systems to, to withstand all that outside pressure. Um, and as you mentioned, as these state legislatures consider um, these proposals, whether it be voting rights or, um, or allowing the legislature to pick electors, it's gonna be even more pressure on Congress uh, under a democratic majority um, to pass an overall voting rights bill that supersedes, that, that overrules these some of these state legislative uh, issues. And that's why the Voting Rights Act, the Democrats have pledged to be a, a, a top priority. It's going to be really interesting to see how that moves forward. 
Yeah, it absolutely will. Uh, as long as the ball's in your court, Greg, let's pick up uh, the other uh, voting issue, and that was the analysis done by Mark Nisi, uh, your colleague, um, and a couple of others, I think, at AJC, on, uh, on, on the vote on November, on, Dece- on January 5th. The, the fact that three-quarters of a million people were absent from voting on January 5th after having cast ballots in November, Republicans like Julianne Thompson warned over and over again that if President Trump back then didn't get off this uh, campaign to overturn the election results, if some Georgia Republicans, she was quite candid about it, didn't stop arguing that way, uh, Republicans weren't going to show up to the polls. And Julianne seems to have been one of the prescient people on that one, Greg. Yeah, I mean, it's only so much that the Republican electorate can withstand all the talks of a rigged election. Um you know, you, you expect a drop-off and a statewide runoff, and that's what happened really in, in pretty much every county in Georgia. But the Democratic drop-off which was, was lower than the Republican drop-off, and that's it's the bottom line. And the Republican drop-off was sharpest in the areas where the Republicans could least afford that sort of big drop-off. That includes Northwest Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, um, the home of uh, of overwhelming Republican majorities and some areas in rural Georgia and the South South Georgia. Um, and that's the reason why it's two two areas that Donald Trump visited in the run-up to these run-up. Valdosta experienced the drop, a sharp a drop-off and Rome experienced, uh, the Dalton area, I should say, experienced a sharp drop-off. And, um, you know, Democrats at the same time deserve a credit, of course, because of soaring African-American turnout, especially when compared to previous um, statewide runoffs. But those two factors combined, and it's exactly what Julianne and so many other Republicans, well, a few other Republicans were saying publicly, but many were saying privately, which is this rigged election talk uh, was going to have a detrimental effect in the long term for Republicans. And that's what happened. Julianne, you must find it so frustrating to see data proving a point that you made on this show over and over again. Well, I think that the vast majority of Republicans knew that this was the situation, but a lot of people were just afraid to say so. You had the Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell factor telling people that that Leffler and Purdue didn't believe or stand for Trump, and so they shouldn't show up and vote. And then you had the Democrat-run um, Really America PAC pick up on that and buy billboards around Georgia echoing what Wood and Powell said, which continued to, you know, to ramp up voter anger. Um, Then you've got the fact that I do believe that the Trump loss was part of it, but not a huge part of it. Like Greg said, Whitfield County, where he came uh, to do a rally, underperformed greatly on January 5th compared to the general election. Um, I think that was in part because of the misinformation that was spread about Leffler and Purdue by Wood and Powell and the like. Um, But I think it's also there was also a lack of enthusiasm about the two candidates, um, which included lackluster campaigns, bad messaging on commercials from outside PACs. And what appeared to rural Georgians to be a rejection of their importance, a fly around or a last minute bus tour isn't enough. You have to make sure, like Greg said, um, when it comes to rural Georgia, which is extremely important to Republicans, you have to make sure that South Georgia and rural North Georgia understand 
that you care as much about them while you're governing and, you know, during the times that you're not campaigning for reelection as, as, as you do the rest of the time. And I feel like a lot of people in rural Georgia just were not excited about these candidates and didn't show up as a result. Jeremiah, I've got to get to a break, but before I do, this fits right into what your work was uh, during the election. You were very uh, uh, focused on assuring Democrats uh, turned out to the polls uh, in, in the election cycle. Yeah, I had the pleasure of working with a group called Battleground Georgia, which was specifically targeting African-American voters who did not turn out in November, but who were registered voters. Uh, and ultimately, we helped to turn out about 77,000 people in that universe, which was ultimately wider uh, than the margin between John Ossoff and David Perdue. So what we found doing that was that a lot of people weren't talking to these voters, and it's important not to write off any of these voters because they do care. They just need that personal touch, and there's still nothing that beats a knock on somebody's door trying to get people to turn out to vote. A rally can't replicate uh, that. Which, which was a change in Democratic strategy in the midst of COVID during primary elections and the like. Democrats were trying to do everything remotely and realized that just wasn't going to work for the general. So thank you for pointing that out. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, big news again today nationally. We're going to talk about her, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, mayor's race in Atlanta, which, as I said at the beginning of the show, is actually starting to get underway. All that when Political Rewind continues. Caesar Mitchell, Jeremiah Olney, Julianne Thompson, Greg Bluestein all joined me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Greg, Politico's playbook, which, by the way, if people aren't subscribing to, they really know. Those of you who listen to the show, you love politics. If you're not subscribing to the free Politico morning, at least the morning briefing, they have one later in the day as well. I think you're missing something good. And you should be subscribing to Punchbowl as well. Jake Sherman, yeah. who launched that effort, was on the show a couple weeks ago. But anyhow, Greg, what I started to say is Politico's playbook this morning has a pretty big exclusive. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, met last night with Marjorie Taylor Greene to talk to her about the conspiracy theories the likes of tweets suggesting that leaders of the Democratic Party, like Nancy Pelosi, should be executed, uh, her belief that Jewish lasers in space started the wildfire in California, that all of this was having an impact. And he apparently, according to Politico, essentially said she has three options. Um, one, she could denounce QAnon and apologize publicly for espousing hurtful conspiracy theories and endorsing violence on Democrats. That's what Politico writes. Two, she could remove herself uh, from the education uh, committee and perhaps the budget committee as well so that Democrats don't take those jobs away from her, which they've said they'll do if Republicans don't act. Or she could face removal from Republicans in the House uh, themselves. So, uh, uh, Greg, and apparently Politico reports, and I'll just stop at this, it must not have gone as well as McCarthy hoped because he then called a late-night meeting uh, with the panel that designates co committee assignments, and apparently they're now talking about how they're going to strip her of at least one of those committees. Greg? Yeah, and what, they, what House Republicans don't want to do is they don't want a full floor vote on Marjorie Taylor Greene. They feel like that could be catastrophic because it would force uh, potentially vulnerable Republicans to have to, to have to decide to have to vote on her, and many of them won't, will vote to remove her. 
Um, there are already many members of her own caucus who won't be anywhere near her, who treated her like a pariah, who have spoken out against her. And you're seeing now even Senate Republicans taking the lead, Mitch McConnell and some of his, Mitt Romney, some others who are um, who are vocally uh, urging House leaders to to do sanction her, rebuke her, do something to uh, to punish her. Um, but what we're also seeing is a trend from Marjorie Taylor Greene. She doesn't apologize. She doesn't. Um, stand back down on these issues, even when even when um, her falsehoods, her her rhetoric has has inspired violence and 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 hurt families and 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 hurt Georgians. Um, and so she's she's even uh, continuing that this morning on on Twitter, just saying she'll never back down. She'll she'll never <laughs> she'll never step back. She'll never apologize. And we give her all sorts of opportunities during the the uh, general election cycle to talk about. Um, why she doesn't believe it? She, her, her spokespeople would always say she doesn't believe in QAnon anymore. She's, she's, she's retreated from that stance. But she would never tell us that. She would never at press conferences, at events, um, if she had, if she had ever disavowed uh, QAnon, she never made it public, and it baffled me because I thought she'd want to clear the air and and uh, give her new stance or give her, and at least would give her that space in, in the AJC and other publications to do so. But she wouldn't do so. Um, she's turning to uh, Donald Trump for cover. Uh, she uh, put out a note there, tweet, tweet the other day saying that uh, Trump had uh, said he was standing by her, he admires her. And now she says uh, she's going to be heading down to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump at some point, she says, soon. Uh, Caesar, let me add another piece of information to all this and then get you and everybody else to weigh in. Morning Consult, which is a pretty reputable uh, polling uh, team, uh, found something fascinating, which kind of goes to what Greg Bluestein says about she's not backing down. 46% of voters across the country now have views about Marjorie Taylor Greene one way or the other. She, her uh, um, uh, uh, visibility among American voters is up 21 points since August of 2020. Um, a third of voters are, have unfavorable views of her, but 13% have favorable views of her. And they compare it, Caesar, to this spike in popularity, and boy, the people who are liberals in the audience aren't going to like this, that uh, AOC gained after she won her surprise victory in Congress a while back. So in some ways, uh, Caesar, her outspokenness, her refusal to back down is making her better known and giving her more of a platform. Yeah, that's the game today. I mean, you know, the, the rapper 50 Cent has that saying, get rich uh, or die trying, get famous or die trying. I think that's what she's going to do. And again, this is the Trump effect. I think she feels as if she has cover and 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 and, and having an associate cover from Trump and having an association uh, with him or at least his backing, I think she thinks uh, bolsters her. Uh, I guess she's in a relatively safe district, so who really is she accountable to than the folks who elected her? Uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm kind of split on this because on the one hand, I think rhetoric like that uh, is dangerous to our democracy, but also it's, um, you know, it's first amendment, right? She can say what she wants to say, but then there's a certain respect for the institution and she's in the United States Congress and there, and there's a certain type of decorum that's expected, but, but also politically, she just may end up being the gift that keeps on giving to Democrats. So we'll see how that, that turns out. Julianne? 
I think it's been a very touchy subject for a lot of elected Republicans as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is becoming increasingly popular with voters in the 14th district. Even voters that didn't originally support her are now throwing a lot of support behind her uh, because they see her as a fighter. The, the very thing that makes her a pariah to a lot of people in Congress is what makes the voters in her district like her. She's picked up the Trump mantle and is basically representing his voice right now in elected office. Um, you know, whether whether Republicans publicly rebuke her uh, and, and how they treat Liz Cheney and really both is going to be a bellwether moment uh, for the GOP when it comes to the future of the party and the message that it's sending. But I think one thing is certain, and that's what Greg stated earlier, uh, there is absolutely no way that Marjorie Greene is going to bag down. I don't believe she would ever agree to any of those things. So this is going to be a very interesting thing to watch. Yeah, Julianne, let me uh, just amplify something you said. The Republicans in the House have, have two big uh, decisions to make. One, are they going to strip Liz Cheney of her leadership post in the Republican conference because she voted for the impeachment of uh, Donald Trump, and at the same time, are they going to uh, have a lenient approach to Marjorie Taylor Greene, which makes your point about this is a real crossroads for uh, Republicans nationally. And again, as they move towards starting an election cycle of 2022. Jeremiah, let me play a soundbite and then get you to respond to all of this. Uh, Governor Kemp, was asked about his take on Marjorie Taylor Greene in a radio interview he did a couple days ago. And um, it was pretty clear he didn't really want to talk much about it. Let's listen to just a part of what he said. I know just from the limited amount that I've seen in the back and forth, it's, it's my understanding a lot of the things that are being referenced to Representative Greene, things that happened before the election. I've always had great respect for the will of the people in the state. Um, they have elected Marjorie Green to Congress and she's currently serving. And if the voters don't like what she's doing or how she's representing them, as you all know, we'll have an election cycle that is quick, quickly coming become uh, upon us again. And the voters can weigh in on that. So, Jeremiah, there's two ways to approach what Kemp said there. Number one, as we said on this show two days ago when we talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's true. She was elected in a fair and legal contest by the voters in the 14th Congressional District. And in the long run, they're the ones who determine who their representative should be in Congress, unless the behavior is so egregious that a given party, Democrat or Republican, says, no, 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 we don't tolerate that. We're stripping you of your seat. On the other hand, uh, Governor Kemp clearly is nervous about uh, doing what uh, Mitch McConnell did, which is to say her ideas are loony. Jeremiah? Yeah, I think for the governor, this is more of a political consideration than anything else. I mean, his favorability numbers have tanked since the general election and since he had to come out and say, no, our elections were secure. There was no widespread voter fraud. And he had to publicly rebuke Trump in a way that I'm sure he was very uncomfortable with doing. And now he knows that he's going to need these voters, the people who voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene, to get him through the primary that he has coming up next year. The way I see it now is that we've kind of almost got two Republican parties, which kind of goes back to the choice that you and Julianne were just talking about, where do they go you know, lenient with Liz Cheney or do they go lenient with Marjorie Taylor Greene? 
there are these two groups now where one is, I would say, the sort of more the Trump-oriented style, which is very openly build the wall, like immigrants are taking over America. That's their message. It's very openly bigoted, and it's very much designed to drive a wedge between people and scare their base of those people. And then there's also sort of Kevin McCarthy Republicans, which think we're all about trickle-down economics, we're all about cutting taxes, and that's what we want to focus on. We don't want to focus on these divisive issues of like social issues and immigration. And that's why I think Kevin McCarthy doesn't get when he brought Marjorie Taylor Greene into his office. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not putting on an act. This is not just something to win votes. She deeply believes these things, and so does now a very large majority of the Republican base, to the point where I almost don't see the Republican Party as one party. I see it as two parties. And I think the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene beats sort of a more classic style Republican in her primary is probably making a lot of the sort of trickle-down <clears throat> economics Republicans really scared for their primaries in 2022. Yeah, and look, Governor Kemp's sidestepping of that question reflects the entire Republican establishment's handling of, of Marjorie Taylor Greene last year. Um, there, was, there was opportunities for Republicans to band together and stop her uh, if they wanted to. Uh, and, they, and they either didn't because they didn't want to exert the, the, the resources or they didn't want to risk, I think more likely, they didn't want to risk alienating um, Trump's base because she, she came out of such a, a Trump supporter early on. So, you know, whether it be a, a uniting behind uh, another candidate in the 14th doing the before the before the primary or aligning behind John Cowan, the, the local Rome neurosurgeon who, who had actually grown up in the district um, doing the before the runoff. Um, we saw over and over again, Repu most Republicans, not all, but most Republicans um, refused to do so, even though they knew that this very situation we're in right now um, could could happen. I mean, I wrote a story the day, the night she won the runoff saying she promised to, Marjorie Taylor Greene promised to be a headache for Democrats, but she could end up being a nightmare for Republicans. And it wasn't some prescient, it, it, it was reflected everything I was hearing from Republicans on the ground who were worried that what's happening right now would happen. And that's exactly what happened. Caesar? Yeah, I agree with Jeremiah and Greg. I think the Republican Party right now comes off like a deer in headlights. I mean, it's this the way this is playing out, uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene is very similar to, to what we saw happen during the runoff when Donald Trump came to Georgia, railed against the statewide elected officials who were Republicans, the governor, the secretary of state, lieutenant governor, railed against uh, the election turnout and claimed voter fraud, but then encouraged uh, <laughs> Republicans to come out and vote uh, for the, the uh, for uh, Kelly Neffler and David Perdue. You know, when, when that happened in my brain, I said, there's got to be some reverse psychology, some kind of greater master plan that I'm missing here. And I came up with this idea, oh, okay, they want to give the Republican Party a, a smorgasbord, uh, Republican voters a smorgasbord of rationale to go out and vote. Well, the opposite happened. Uh, you know, Republicans by and large, and this is human nature, you have two competing and conflicting concepts being thrown at you constantly, you tend to tune out and really kind of back away. And, 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 and I think the same thing is at risk here. It's not as if the Republican Party is the solid majority party in this country. It's the waning majority really moving towards a minority party. And the last thing uh, you, you should do as a party when you're moving in that direction uh, is to have divisions like you see now and still have this smorgasbord kind of approach, this divided approach, is only going to make it worse for the party. And again, I think for Democrats, you know, uh, you know, I think it's a gift that just keeps on giving. Julianne, I want to give you the last word before we have to take a break. 
I just think that Republicans need to understand when it comes to dealing with people uh, who are not extremely popular when it comes to elected officials versus the base of the Republican Party. If elected officials appear to be banning together and saying, we don't want you to support this person, we want you to support John Cowan or whoever else would be running, Keep in mind that the 14th Congressional District is not going to to listen to a group of elected officials who are trying to tell them what they should do. They're going to rebel against that. They're going to consider that to be ganging up on them, and they're going to rebel against it. So I think you have to be very, very careful when dealing with situations like this, and I think that that is why Governor Kemp was so cautious with his words and said what he did that ultimately this is up to the voters of the 14th district. Um, All right. Julianne Thompson gets the last word in this segment. We're going to come back in a moment and talk a bit about the mayor's race in the city of Atlanta. You're listening to Political Rewind. Cesar Mitchell, we like you a lot as a person and as an analyst on this show. So I don't mean to conjure up past memories, but four plus years ago, you were a candidate for mayor of Atlanta and one of your opponents was Keisha Lance Bottoms. And now a new mayor's race gets underway with the president of city council declaring she's gonna run against, uh, Felicia Moore is gonna run against uh, Bottoms. How tough a campaign do you imagine this is going to be for the incumbent mayor. And of course, others are likely to jump in as well. This is just the beginning of the election process. Well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very important question. That's an it. I mean, are other candidates going to jump in? I think that you know, if, if you have, if you have a crowded field, I think that's going to create a completely different dynamic than if you have basically a head to head matchup between, uh, you know, mayor bottoms and, President Moore. If you have a lot of candidates in the race, uh, I think that actually ignores in an odd way to the benefit of Mayor Bottom. If it's head to head, I think what happens is you have, uh, you know, a focal point on the, you know, that uh, that you have on Mayor Bottom and really a referendum on her work as, as, as mayor. And that's something that one candidate uh, can focus on, and a lot of the chatter that tends to confuse people and divide up bases uh, kind of goes away. And so I think it really depends uh, on uh, how crowded the field uh, becomes. And one other thing I'll say, too, um, is, you know, Mayor Bottoms did make uh, an announcement a year ago that she was going to run for re-election, but a lot has happened since then. Uh, and so I think many people are still wondering whether or not she actually is going to run. Really? Uh, so I think, really? Well, yeah, I, I, I get that question all the time. And so I think that's something that needs to be put to rest pretty quickly as well, uh, because that will impact how the field shakes up. Okay, but Bluestein, she had an opportunity. I mean, Joe Biden uh, invited her to become a part of his administration, which she said no to. I guess me not being as clued into city politics as uh, certainly Caesar Mitchell, probably Jeremiah, and you are. Uh, I just assumed that was a sure sign that she planned to run for re-election. Yeah, I get that question all the time too. It's 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 bizarre, and and it speaks yeah. to um, the 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 challenge that 
Bottoms administration has in formally rolling out a, a bigger deal for a re-election campaign. Because yeah, when she turned down um, a cabinet post for to, to run the SBA, the Small Business Administration, uh, we wrote that it, that that was a clear sign that she's focusing instead on a but And even when she got a DNC vice chair role, which is a largely ceremonial role, we, we are flooded with questions. Does this mean she's she's going to be you know uh, joining the DNC formally full time? And no, it doesn't. Um, but it's kind of incumbent upon Mayor Bottoms and not the media to make it even clearer that she's running for re-election. I don't think she has in recent days, but you know, we'll, we we should expect some sort of bigger campaign rollout uh, now that she has some formal opposition. Uh, Jeremiah, um, I think I'm right, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that we need to be a little transparent here. I think your partner at Paramount Consulting has done some uh, has been an advisor to Keisha Lance Bottoms. Am, am I, if I got that right, I don't want to misstate that, but I think he's been, Theron Johnson is, has has advised her uh, uh, over the years. That is correct, yeah. <laughs> okay, that doesn't mean, though, uh, that you shouldn't weigh in on this. Um, first of all, maybe you know whether she's actually running for re-election or not and want to share that with us on this show today. I've heard all the same things y'all have. <laughs> I'll put it <laughs> uh, one, okay, so let me ask you a different question. Mary Norwood, uh, who many people thought was going to try to jump back into the mayor's race, uh, she came within hundreds of votes of beating Keisha Lance Bottoms, has now declared she's going to run for a, uh, a seat on the city council, not run for mayor. And I guess my question becomes, Jeremiah, are the dynamics of mayor's races in Atlanta now such that um, – there's almost inevitably going to be a white candidate who jumps in uh, because of, of seeing an opening if uh, black votes are split, uh, or is that a naive assumption? No, I think that's a pretty realistic assumption of what's going to happen, especially the dynamics of this particular race in this particular year. I mean, we're going to see a lot more chaos within the city council races than I think we usually would uh, going into a mayor's possible second term. Because with the Atlanta City Council President Moore stepping up to run, that opens up the Atlanta City Council President seat. I'm sure we'll have two or three city council people run for the Atlanta President seat now, and that'll open up those seats. But really, if you look at Felicia Moore's statement when she decided to run for office, and if you look at the press release that I believe was Howard Shook put out a few weeks ago, like everybody right now is talking about the crime issue in Atlanta and what the implications of that are. And one, I think that's going to be particularly uh, resonance with a lot of the sort of the white voters who live in the northern parts of the city. But two, I think it's also very concerning that's what people are focusing on. I was just looking at the APD's crime data from last year, and violent crime was down in 2020. Everyone's been talking about how the homicide rate has been up, but violent crime overall was down. And now the rhetoric around this is we need to, you know, bolster police funding. We need to fill these sworn officers. But I, that's not going to fix the problem. What I think people should be talking about right now when it comes to fixing the crime problem is address the homelessness problem, address the problem with food deserts all across Atlanta. We can't keep giving out multi-million dollar tax breaks to these special, like these developers when our city visibly needs that money to kind of get ourselves back in shape. So I'd like to see more of our candidates talking about how we need to be investing more in our people and not our police. So Julianne, I am, goodness knows, I am just a guy who hosts a show about politics. I would not be a particularly sound political consultant. But I would guess that given that Keisha Lance Bottoms has gained national uh, uh, um, visibility, recognition, 
uh, for a number of things. Number one, for uh, uh, fighting with Governor Kemp over the mandates that he did not put in place about fighting uh, COVID, for her outspokenness about the demonstrations this past summer, um, the fact that she has taken issue with Governor Kemp on a number of occasions. She's now saying to the federal government, you ought to give us supplies of vaccine because we can do a better job in the city of Atlanta than Governor Kemp has done for the state. I would guess that at least part of the campaign she runs is to say, I stood up against a Republican governor who wasn't acting in the best interests of the state of uh, Georgia. Well, I, first of all, I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think that the Biden administration is going to ship vaccines directly to the city of Atlanta or any other city for that matter. Um, as you stated earlier, um, the administration is beginning to ship the vaccines to directly to pharmacies and clinics um, so they can be administered faster without the middleman bureaucracy, whether it's state bureaucracy or uh, municipal bureaucracy. Hopefully that combined with the upcoming release of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the Novavax vaccine will help get those vaccines into the arms of people who need it most. Um, but going back to um, Mayor Bottoms, I agree 100% with every single thing that Caesar Mitchell said. I think he's right on target um, with all of his comments. And I really wouldn't add anything to that, except I would say this with regard to something Jeremiah said, um, talking about violence being down or violent crime being down. We'll tell that to the people living in Buckhead. And for that very reason, that is one of the reasons I do believe she is most vulnerable, because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you want to be safe. And her responses to the escalating violence and that downward spiral of public safety in the city is going to have a huge impact on her reelection prospects with voters like the ones in Buckhead. Greg, I want to give you the last word on uh, this as you watch this uh, mayor's race begin to get underway. Yeah, well, first, I'm looking really carefully at that relationship she has with Governor Kemp because Governor Kemp has a new leadership team, a new chief of staff, a new campaign consultant, and he's trying to strike a, a new tone. And let's see if that extends to Mayor Bottoms. And secondly, this is a national story because the because Mayor Bottoms was such a high profile supporter of, of Joe Biden. And uh, this could become a, a time where Joe Biden comes in and helps support her reelection bid. Absolutely. Thank you for making that point. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. I hope listeners enjoyed the conversation I did the way I did. You all were really offering some terrific analysis today. So Julianne Thompson, Jeremiah Olney, Susan Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein, thanks so much for being with us uh, today. Hey, David Pogue, former New York Times tech columnist, uh, a commentator on uh, CBS Sunday Morning joins us tomorrow. He's got a brand new book. It's an encyclopedic look at how to prepare for climate change and don't get nervous. It's very much a down-to-earth look at what we can do ourselves to fight against climate change. That's on tomorrow's show. So that's it for us today. I will see you again uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and wear a couple of masks. See you tomorrow.